All right, let's pick our Bibles back up and make our way back to Matthew 8 for our passage this morning. Matthew 8. Last week we took a a week off of Matthew and looked at uh, the catechism question and answer for for June. Uh, And it is on the back of the bulletin there. It's just a reminder what benefits do believers receive from Christ at their death. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, praise the Lord, and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves Till the resurrection. Praise be to God for uh, benefits of Christ and death. The hope we have in it. Well, today we look um, we look at Matthew eight verses five through thirteen. Now I'll just kind of give you some warning. As we go through Matthew, we're going to come to spots where it seems like there's going to be repetition. So in the first three sort of uh, stories in Matthew eight first three incidences are all healings, okay? And so we can all make one big point out of all three, but there are usually some details within each account that we can pull out and learn something more about uh, Jesus, ourselves, or in the case of uh, this week, the kingdom of heaven. And so also when we go through the gospel, uh, the shape of the sermon will be different usually, week by week. Sometimes we'll have three points, sometimes we'll have seven points, and today we'll have no points. <laughs> it just As we look at the text and as I study through it, I uh, just want the Lord to lead in how to best present it, and it's just going to look different week by week. And so understand that. Um, but I've tried to, as I was working through this, I did try to think of a few headings. There's not really points. We are going to just walk through this sort of verse by verse and bring out some things. But if there are some guideposts for us, here's what they would be. The first thing uh, we're going to focus on uh, would be the unworthiness of the centurion. The second thing would be Christ. And the third thing would be the kingdom. So those are very vague, and there's just sort of some guideposts. So we'll look at the centurion, Christ, and the kingdom. Uh, so let's just let's just start at verse five and work our way through. When he had entered Capernaum, that'd be Jesus. A centurion came forward to him. Okay, so we remember. Verse five or chapter five, six, and seven. Jesus is not in Capernaum, but he's on a mountain. He had crowds following him as he left Galilee, and was going from town to town. And seeing that there were crowds, he went to a mountain and he started preaching. So we're assuming that that's outside of a town. And after he comes down off the mountain, after the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of Matthew seven, we see that he goes into Capernaum. Now. I want to give you a little bit about Capernaum because I think it's helpful. It was helpful for me. Um, Capernaum is a city on the edge of the Sea of Galilee in that region where Jesus and the disciples have been a lot in the beginning of of his ministry. Jesus actually sort of claims Capernaum as his second home, his home away from home. 
Nazareth was his first. Well, we've already been to Nazareth if you uh, if you're keeping up chronologically in the Gospels, and they didn't take too kindly to him. So he finds a place in Capernaum. He also left uh, Nazareth because of the news of John the Baptist being arrested. And so Jesus flees from Nazareth and makes his way towards Capernaum. Capernaum is also the place where he, he calls most of his disciples. Um, we'll see next week, Lord willing, that Peter's mother-in-law lives at Capernaum. And actually, uh, archaeologists say that they discovered Peter's home in Capernaum. Uh, Matthew, the author of this gospel account, is also from Capernaum, and we'll see Jesus' interaction with him in chapter 9. But there's a couple other things about Capernaum I want you to know. Um, one of the things that we don't really quite get from the scripture, but history helps us to see, is that Capernaum was a Roman town. It wasn't, it wasn't a fully established Jewish town or city. Uh, it was Roman ruled, and there was a good mixture of Roman citizens, Gentiles, and Jews. Okay, and I don't know if, I don't know about you, but when I think about a mixture of Roman citizens and Jews, my mind ultimately will go to conflict. But in Capernaum, that wasn't the case. And so for me, I've actually, and this is, I want to, I want to give this sort of a side warning. I think I've been influenced by extra biblical media movies, shows that have gave, given me the sense that Rome, Jew, bad, conflict. When that, that isn't always the case. Right? If, you, if, you, if you looked at the Jewish-Roman relationship within Capernaum, you understand that they actually had um, a, good, a good relationship. We actually see late, I think it's in Luke, yeah, it's in Luke, that the, the, the centurion in chapter 8 here that we speak of is a Roman centurion. He's a Roman soldier. He's a Roman citizen. But he had a very good relationship with the Jews. Luke says in his account that when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent, he, he sent to Jesus elders of the Jews. So the centurion had relationships with the elders of the Jews in Capernaum. And he asked that, that Jesus would come and heal his servant. And this is what the... The, the elders of the Jews said about the centurion, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So I just wanted to... There are movies and shows and all kinds of things on TV that are usually true, but sometimes they sort of create thinking in our mind that might not always be Biblical, so you just have to be very careful. Be very careful. Um, so something else about Capernaum is it was, and this is going to help us think through it in other other times throughout Matthew. Capernaum was a what was how did they call it a Roman tax polling station. Now there's where the conflict came in. The Rome the Romans did heavily tax Israel. And that was a conflict even in Capernaum. Uh, Matthew, again, a tax collector in Capernaum, uh, has a bad reputation as well as all Jewish tax collectors. Okay, so enough about Capernaum. Just a little bit there for you to have in the back of your mind. Um, the centurion comes to Jesus in Capernaum. But who's this centurion? 
Well, all I want you to know right now is that he's a, he's a Roman officer. He's a Roman soldier, okay? And he has authority over other Roman soldiers. And we'll come back to that at this point. But just know that, but also understand that he's in no conflict with Jesus nationally, ethnically. There, there, there is no, there's no conflict between the two. Um, but look what he says in verse 6. The centurion says to Jesus, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So the, the, the centurion acquires of Jesus' help, assistance, his healing for his servant who is at home paralyzed. He's at home. The centurion came, and uh, for Matthew's account, came to Jesus and met him outside of his home. Now, when, we, when Jesus cleansed or healed the leper, Jesus touched the leper and then spoke, uh, spoke his healing uh, uh, to manifest there. But here we have Jesus away from the one who is paralyzed and suffering. In verse 7, Jesus gives a quick response. Like, we don't even get the request or the plead of action from the sin. He doesn't say, go and heal him or come and heal him. or do it. He doesn't say anything. He just says, I have a servant who is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus' immediate response is, from what we have written, is I'll do it, basically. Okay? It's done. He says, uh, I will come and heal him. That was probably a quicker and more gracious response that from Jesus than the centurion was expecting. He probably wasn't expecting him to just automatically be, all right, here I go. Well, show me where show me where to go. Look what he says in response. He doesn't say, Oh, thank thank you or bless you. He says, but. He says, but but the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. The centurion stops Jesus and basically says, No, no, no. You cannot enter into my house. You cannot enter into my house. And what's the reason? What does he say? He doesn't, you know, it doesn't say anything about his Roman citizenship or the fact that he's not a Jew. Uh, I, I, I don't think that's probably the thing that's causing him to pause here and to tell Jesus that he can't come into his home. He just says, Lord, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. Now, this is where I want to stop and meditate on the centurion for a little bit. And to meditate and to consider that statement, I am not worthy just to have you come under my roof. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty big. There's two, two things here. Two ways for us to think about this. Imagine that we have, okay, today we have homes and people come into our homes why would we deny someone of dignity and honor access into our home? I got to thinking about that. I don't think we would meet anyone in this life and say, mm, "You're a little, you're a little bit. My home is unworthy of you." But if we were to say that, it probably wouldn't be because of the state of us as people. But we'd probably be like, "You don't want to come into my house. The condition of my house, physically." Is not great. The floors are a little dirty. The dishes are backed up. We want. We don't want people. You invited who into our house? Did you see the entryway? See, we would get caught up in the the condition of our home, 
not the condition of our hearts, not the condition of the souls that dwell within our homes. Uh, the centurion's hesitation is not, Jesus, my home's not worthy of you. I'm not worthy of you. Therefore, don't enter my home. Uh, think about God's words to Moses in the burning bush. Now, God's condition, His holiness, makes His presence, the place that He's at, holy. Right? He, what's He tell Moses? Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Why? It's just the wilderness. Because God's presence was there. God's presence, His state, makes the place or the the place or the yeah the place where he is holy the centurion says the very opposite my home is unworthy because that is my home and i am unworthy so it's opposite of god therefore he says i'm common my home is common he's acknowledging jesus holiness and says jesus my home i and my home are unworthy of your holiness so just think about I, I, I didn't I thought I wrote this on my phone but it didn't get into my paper here bit of a practical application for this um, see if I can remember it off the cuff we get caught up in the physical conditions of our home typically and deny the the physical, the spiritual conditions of the hearts within the home. Okay, we 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 spend so much money and effort and time concerned about the inside and the outside of our properties, but the most important, precious things that dwell within our homes are are the souls of our family. Okay, that's the most important thing. We could create a beautiful house and beautiful land. And it just be whitewashed tombs if we neglect the most precious things within our homes. Fathers, the burden is on you. Husbands, the burden is on you. That's where it begins. Okay, so the second thing we could, when considering his statement that he is unworthy, could also come from the fact that he just doesn't, he's not deserving of Jesus to come into his home. He hasn't done anything of value or honor. For Jesus, who is honorable and and um, of infinite value, uh, he's I'm not worthy of you. I don't deserve for you to come into my home. But here again, this is where thinking about him as a centurion comes into play, um, because the fact that he is a Roman centurion says that on a horizontal on on, on this sort of man's man level, he has been honorable. He has been a man of dignity. The uh, I found this from the Westminster Bible Dictionary when it talks about why a Roman soldier would get promoted to the position of a centurion, which that that would be one who is in command of you know up to a hundred soldiers. It says their promotion to centurion to the command of one hundred men was usually the reward of that good conduct, which is the result of thoughtfulness. And self-restraint 
while the truthfulness and straightforwardness of their character would naturally dispose them to be fair-minded and just. Sound like a pretty good guy. Right? That's why he was an honorable man. He was worthy of the position of centurion. Yet when Jesus says, I'm coming to your home, he says, I'm not worthy. You know, we think, you know, we might have a conversation with him and say, come on, don't don't be so, don't be that way, Roman centurion, you know. Take a little pride in what you've done and who you are. You've worked really hard. You've achieved great things. You've shown yourself to be honorable and trustworthy. Stand tall. Stand proud, Roman centurion. What do you think his response would be? Eh, Maybe. But in the shadow of this man? No. I'm nothing. I'm unworthy. I am not worthy. The word he uses to, to, to describe himself, not worthy, the word worthy is used in a way to express a measurement of sufficiency. Two Bible illustrations to help you think through that. After the resurrection, uh, the Jewish leaders pay off the guards to tell a, a lie about what happened. And it says, I think it's it's in Mark or Luke. It says that they paid them a large a large amount is the same word for worthy, a sufficient amount to cover up the lie. Those soldiers had to put their necks out for that lie, so the Jewish leaders had to make sure to pay them a worthy amount that they would risk their lives for the sake of telling the lie. John the Baptist, when he's questioned by the Jewish leaders. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? He goes, no, I'm just the guy that comes before. I'm not even worthy to untie the one who's coming, his sandal straps. I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm not sufficient in the shadow of the one who is to come. Same thing for the centurion. But here, here's where we're going to then take one more step. What causes such a mindset? What causes a man to say, I, an honorable, dignified, good man, what causes him to say, I am unworthy? It's knowledge. It's knowledge. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, as as this centurion stands before Jesus, he knows two things. He knows something about Jesus and he knows something about himself. And that knowledge reveals to him his unworthiness. But most importantly, the worthiness of Jesus. Now, I know you're, if you're a good Bible student, you might ask me, well, doesn't Jesus marvel at his faith, not his knowledge? Well, my question back to you is, is what is his faith in? It's in what he knows. Now, I'm, I'm flirting with, I'm this close to heresy here, so I want you to pay attention, okay? I want you to be very focused. We live in a time 
probably the last hundred years when Christianity has been more feeling-driven than knowledge-driven, okay? Um, We've been pushed to believe, but we've not been sufficiently taught what we are to believe, okay? We've got a culture that pushes an experience where churches and pastors and, 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 and all the hoopla, the environments, the sermons... Are, are created and they're worked very hard to make you feel a certain way in church, right? To make you experience something. So when you leave, you're like, yes, that's what was right because I experienced something. Um, the, the assumption is, is that feeling equals reality. And that Feeling, if, if, if I as a preacher can get you to feel something, then I've been successful in my preaching. Well, that's not true. Um, at the same time that we've pressed for feelings, we've f- repelled knowledge or doctrine, making true statements from the Bible. Knowledge puffs up, so we want to stay away from it, but taking it to an unbiblical place. And it's crazy when you think about it. It actually, the church is actually mimicking the world today, and it has. It's been on the same trajectory. Feeling trumps knowledge. I am a man, but I feel like a woman. Like the truth is there, but the truth doesn't matter. Knowledge doesn't matter. My feelings matter. Or the knowledge of what marriage is between a man and a woman. But I feel this way about a man. So you can notice the trajectory of the church along with the culture. The, the big question is which came first. Okay, that's another topic for another day. So today's trend is to say I believe in Jesus and I don't need doctrine I don't need to, to understand theology. I don't need to be built up in knowledge. And then someone goes, tell me more about this Jesus. And you're like, uh. And if you give an answer, what are you giving? You better be giving the right knowledge, the right theology. An unbeliever visits our church and sees you raising your hands while you sing that song or bowing your head while you pray. Or even asking you, why did you come here today? Why did you wake up early and get your kids dressed and come to church? And all of those above examples, raising your hands, bowing your heads, simply coming to church, are expression of our knowledge of the worthiness of Jesus. Our understanding that he is worthy of our worship, of our sacrifice, of our submission and our our obedience. Why? Because we know Him. And because we, we know that Jesus is God in the flesh, sent to live a righteous life as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God, sent to die a sacrificial death. We know this, that He's the Lamb of God, bearing the wrath of God for the guilt of sinners. We know Jesus is our only hope in this life, and in death. Knowledge. 
Why did the centurion go to Jesus? Because he knew. He had knowledge that Jesus was his only hope. But why did the centurion tell Jesus not to come under his roof? Because he knew Jesus was not just a man like himself. He knew Jesus was more honorable, more righteous, powerful than him. Therefore, what did he do? He humbled himself before Jesus and said, You are worthy. I am not. You cannot come into my house. What he says in verse 9 helps us to see that a little bit clearer. Look at verse 9. He says, For I too am a man under authority. What does he know about Jesus? He has authority. He knows it because he just said it. I too, meaning not just you, but I too. He knows Jesus has authority, but he also knows the difference in the magnitude or the degree of that authority. Look what he says. Um, he, who, who does he give a command to? He goes, I tell a servant, I tell a man to come and go to do this and do that. But what does he claim Jesus has authority over? He doesn't say what Jesus has authority over directly. But the whole point of the conversation tells us what he knows Jesus has authority over. And what is it? Creation. Molecules and atoms and diseases. Life and death. He knows that Jesus' authority, Jesus says, be healed. And the molecules and the atoms and the disease and all of it just happens. He knows this. That's why he comes to him. But only say the word, the centurion said to Jesus. Make the command and creation will obey you. My servant will be healed. That's authority. So what we're going to what we're seeing as we study Matthew, we see we saw it at the end of chapter 7. Jesus teaches with authority. He speaks words of authority, but he also speaks authority over creation and it obeys because and what what Matthew wants us to know is that Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. Molecules, atoms, winds, waves, diseases, water, wine, life and death, conception and the end. All are at the command of Jesus. This is his authority. Now look what Jesus says in verse 10. Jesus' response to his statement. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, no one in Israel, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, there it is, faith, okay? We had to come to it. And here, here's where I'm walking on thin ice, okay? We are not Christians by our knowledge, okay, to make that declaration would make you a Gnostic, would make you a heretic. We do not acquire knowledge to the point that we are acceptable unto God, okay? We are justified, we are brought into the kingdom by faith and faith only. All right, so let's play through this just a minute so we can understand this. I'm going to make this statement, and hopefully it's going to become a little bit more clear, and hopefully help you, help you as we go through Matthew and all throughout Scripture. 
where there is true faith, the faith that Jesus marvels at, there is always knowledge. Where there is true faith, there is always knowledge. But sometimes you find knowledge without faith. I say it again. Every time you find true faith, faith that Jesus marvels at, you will find knowledge every time. But sometimes you find knowledge but without faith. Now, how do we know this? Because he tells us in verse 11. Um, actually, in 10. When he compares this man to Israel. Truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. We're talking about Israel. Who has the greatest knowledge of Yahweh in the entire world at this time? Israel. But no faith. Paul tells the Romans... Um, the Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God, the words of God. God gave to Israel knowledge through his word. In another place, he would say that they not only received their knowledge, his, his word, but they received his law. So not only did they know about him, but they then knew what pleased him and what displeased him. They had his very words... But he also set Israel up to remember what they knew. Festivals and feasts. All that the, all so that the knowledge of God would not leave them, but drive them to remember and believe. They knew, Israel knew, they had knowledge, but they lacked faith. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. I say it again. Where there is true faith, there's always knowledge. But sometimes where there's knowledge, there's not always faith. God desires and has planned to make himself known. There's Okay, so when I say knowledge or new or known, I'm trying to make the same point here. God desires to make us knowledgeable about himself. You understand? How's he done it? Through his word. With Adam, it was literally his word. And then with Israel, through Abraham, and through Moses, and then through all the prophets. And then ultimately, as Hebrews tells us, finally, he makes himself known, he's revealed himself through the spoken word of the word made flesh, Jesus. And the word... The word spoken is to spread something. It's the knowledge of the glory of God. But not just to know it, but to believe it, to trust it, and follow and obey His word and ultimately Him. Now, verse 11 and 12 is the beginning, sort of the beginning, of Jesus' controversial ministry in Israel. This is the first statement where Jesus steps on toes, at least as Matthew is concerned. Look at verse 11 and 12. So he's not found any faith, in, uh, such faith in Israel. Verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, 
while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the first shot across the bow of Israel and its leaders. Now, John the Baptist has already taken a few shots when John calls the Israelite, the Jewish leaders, uh, a den of vipers, brood of vipers. Jesus picks up the same message and begins to tell it here. And as we go through Matthew, we'll begin to understand that there is conflict between Jesus' mission and the, the leaders of Israel. Now, what makes it so controversial? Well, in a sense, this is what Jesus is telling Israel. Jesus is telling Israel, I, uh, it's not enough for you to know about God and his kingdom. His kingdom are for those who have faith. It's not enough to be the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For that's actually going to get you nowhere near the kingdom. But then, that might say, well, that's not too bad. But then he makes two points in verse 11 and 12 that really ignites the Jews' hatred for Jesus. Their anointed one. Number one, not only will they... Uh, Not only will you be out of God's kingdom, Jesus is telling Israel in this statement, but he's actually saying, I'm going to give it to people who don't know me. I'm going to give my kingdom to those who know less than you do. Um, When he uses, in verse 11, when he uses the phrase... uh, and many will come from east and west. Now consider, he just declared the faith of a Roman, not a Jew, but a Roman. And he says many are going to come from the east or from the west, and from the west. That means not Israel. Many will come from the nations. And we'll have plenty of time as we go through Matthew to see how this wasn't a secret in the Old Testament. But somehow, the majority of them missed it. That... Through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, right? Not just Israel. So many will come from the east and the west. He's speaking of the Gentiles, those who are without the word of God, right? Israel had received the word of God, the law of God, the covenant of God. But God is going to bring into the kingdom those outside of that. And so Jesus is telling Israel, and he will tell them throughout his life, his ministry, that they will not enter the kingdom of heaven, and they will not eat with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the Gentiles will enter the kingdom by faith. Now, if you're paying attention to me, you're probably gonna you're probably thinking, but what about knowledge? Because you just told me that they don't have knowledge. You said where there's true faith, there's always knowledge. Where does the Gentiles' knowledge come from? Thank you for asking. Look at Romans 10. Turn with me to Romans 10. Beginning in verse 14. So God is going to bring in the Gentiles. They will have to come in by faith because that's the only way to come into the kingdom. 
But what about knowledge? Because we said that knowledge must always be present. Romans 10, verse 14. Now, we could have started back in 9, but for the sake of time, we'll just go here. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now, this is in... This is in in the context of the fact that the Gentiles have now been brought in and the Jews have been left out. How then will they call on him in whom they had not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? If you had not heard, you don't know. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There it is. There it is. That's how the Gentiles are going to believe in what they know. Because the preaching of the gospel is going to take the knowledge to them. Look what he says. Verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Who would that be? Israel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For, quote, this is a quote from Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world, from east to west. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, and then a quote from Deuteronomy. I will make you jealous. Who's you? Israel. God. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, and then quotes Isaiah 65, I have been found to know, right? If you find, you know. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself revealed myself, made known myself to those who did not ask for me. That set the Jews on fire. Even though it was in their scriptures. Now, what was the second thing that he said? Go back to to Matthew 8. He said one more thing. Not only was he devastating the, 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 the Jews because they were not to receive their kingdom and then people who knew less about God were going to receive their kingdom. Not only will you not sit with your fathers, but, but the Gentiles will come in and dine. Verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He just stole the kingdom from them and threw them into hell. How mad does it make them? They kill him. He says, He will throw them into the outer darkness. You will find your place, not at the table with your fathers, but in hell. Think that's too harsh? Let me read you what the writer of Hebrews said from Hebrews chapter 3. Is Jesus being too hard on the Israelites? The writer of Hebrews 
in recalling the Israelites in the wilderness. And if you're following along, it's Hebrews 13, or Hebrews 3, verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? What did they have? They had knowledge. The Israelites in the wilderness had so much knowledge of God. They had saw his works. They had saw his glory in Egypt. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw the food fall from the sky. They saw the rock, the water come out of the rock. Oh, they had knowledge of God. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? A.K.A. his kingdom. Now, to, to them at that time, that was Canaan. He says, but to those who does not enter into his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, here's a math equation. If you pair knowledge plus unbelief or lack of faith, do you know what it results in? Verse the end of verse 18, disobedience. If you have knowledge, but no faith, you will always turn to disobedience. That was what Israel did in the wilderness. That's what Israel was doing in Jesus' time. That is what all people do who do not believe. Because we know that the scriptures tell us that men and women everywhere have knowledge, but what did they do? Suppress the truth. Knowledge plus, or plus a lack of faith equals disobedience. Now, if you're keeping up, you understand that to disobey God, uh, Romans 2 says, uh, results in wrath, fury, tribulation, distress, and condemnation before God. And you say, well, what does that look like? Well, Jesus told them who were there that day, it is a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This was the message, this was the message that Jesus preached throughout all Israel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. To some of the Jews, it was received. And what does John say? All who received it believed in his name and he gave the right to become children of God. Not born of flesh, not born of will nor blood, but of God. But overall, the nation of Israel rejects him and his good news. They rejected the word of God as he, the word of God, stood before him, the great I am. And as it says in Romans, it was through Israel's rejection of Christ, their trespass, that salvation has come to you and I. Their trespass, their rejection means riches for the world. You and I. Now, we could spend a lot of time on that topic. One day we'll get to Romans 9, 10, 11, and we will. But until then, understand that it is through their lack of faith that the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to the nations. And knowledge of God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ has, be, has come to us 
because of that. Now, just a final point of application, a question to ask ourselves based on our text. Here's the question. Are you a true citizen of the kingdom of God or are you an assumed citizen of the kingdom of God? Are you a true citizen or an assumed citizen? Do you assume your citizenship in the kingdom is like that of the Jews based on what you know and how you act on what you know? Now, you might be thinking, that sounds like a good path. If we know, we act on what we know. Well, that's exactly what Israel did. They acted on what they knew, their works. They knew what God wanted, and so they did it. They didn't believe God. They just did what they knew they are supposed to do. Now, that's kind of weird, right? Are you an assumed citizen of the kingdom of God, and you know about God, you know Jesus, and so you go to church, you pray, you're kind to others, you come to the table. Like you know and you do, but you don't have faith. And so you're assuming that based on what you know and then what you do because of what you know, you're going to sit at the table. Well, your place is in the darkness. That, that's something to consider and dwell on. True citizens of the kingdom of God have experienced. See, experience and feelings aren't aren't wrong. They're not bad. Because we must experience a divine act of God's grace of being given the knowledge that brings forth not works, but faith. The gospel has revealed to true citizens the glory of God. Have you seen um, Niagara Falls? I'm not. Have you seen its glory? I'm, I would imagine it is so glorious. What about, um, I can't think of it, the big hole in the, the Grand Canyon. The Canyon. <laughs> Have you seen it and its glory? I haven't. So I can speak about it, but I can't. I can't confess the glory of the Grand Canyon when by a divine act of God's grace in revealing himself to you through the face of Jesus Christ, you see his glory. And you don't do, you believe, you trust, and from that faith you do. Don't assume your salvation because of your knowledge and because of the work you do based on that knowledge. Be like the centurion who knew of his unworthiness before Jesus. He knew of the he had no hope apart from Jesus. He he submitted himself to this authority of Jesus. Be like the centurion and trust in Jesus. Let's look at verse 13. Look at the end. And the centurion, or and to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done as you for I'm sorry. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So today, 
May we go believing. May we go by faith in Him who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And by His wounds, we are healed. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, we humble ourselves before you as one who brings up the sun and puts breath in our lungs, as one who has sent his son to save us from our sin, to save us from unbelief. To bring us into your eternal kingdom. May we not be deceived by our knowledge. But be transformed. By the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And give us faith. Faith to live by. To walk by. Christ's sake, we pray this. Amen. Amen. Now let's turn to 133 in the black hymnal. All glory be to Christ. Let's stand and sing and exalt. Focus our worship as we conclude our service.